Self-Portrait as State Property by Peter M. Dunn. 11A0671, they call as the boy, not quite a man, moves further down the line like a lamb in a slaughterhouse. End of the conveyor belt, a nurse tells him to drop his drawer so she can inspect his meat. She prods and pokes, he coughs and chokes, but there's nothing funny about spreading your cheeks for a stranger to gaze inside your asshole. Nothing funny about the officer's nightstick cracking against somebody's skull, shattering their ribs because the nurse gave them a woody. The boy's beautiful dark mane is shaved before he shampoos his raw scalp underwater like the devil's piss and returns to the line this time to get his picture taken, his mug forever remembered in the hall of shame. An officer with eyes the color of tobacco spit hands him an ID. Name, DIN number, eyes, D-O-B, height, weight, hair, sex, language, but none of these things matter. He is 11A0671 forever or at least for the next decade and a half, which to him is the same. His state greens are at least two sizes too big. The others say he'll grow into them. He looks around at the gunmetal bars, the white paint, the blue of the officers' uniforms, and doesn't see how he can grow into them, into it, into this. How the hell do you get used to seeing men used as pincushions, as cutting boards, their mouths like gaping flounders when the officers break it up? How the hell do you get used to breathing air thick as mildew the floors of the corridor speckled with the blood of decades past, the sleepless nights, the open windows in February that get closed in July, the roaches inside your locker in the hole underneath your sink dripping with water, water that reminds the boy of Lady Liberty, of pennies, of the nine volts he pressed on his tongue as a child at his grandparents' house out of boredom. Out of a deep frustration no one, including himself, was aware of. He can never get used to the others, the other prisoners, the other men, the other kids born without last names and debating the truth like Jews and Christians unable to breathe because they're buried alive, drowning in the fire, in the box, kicking the walls and rattling the bars, flinging shit like chimps screaming for someone, anyone to listen, watching as the boy, not quite a man, 11A0671, moves further down the line. Thorazine, Haldol, and Coffee, My Life in a Prison Mental Health Ward by Michael Kaiser. The idea that I would ever be working in the mental ward of a state hospital or any mental ward, or for that matter, be in prison, was totally foreign to me. 
I was a somewhat successful real estate developer who had also worked for two U.S. presidents. But then I found myself in prison for 60 months, and I needed a job. The only requirement for the Intermediate Care Housing, ICH, daily living orderly job was that I had no sex offenses in my background. I didn't, so I was hired. I had seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest, hell, a fellow Oregonian had written it, and I could look out my window and see what was left of the original state hospital where the movie was filmed. Now I would be tending to men who would have been housed in that institution, but instead they were in prison. My six days of training consisted of learning how to properly lift a man who had fallen and helping to change adult diapers. That was it. As far as the prison was concerned, I was ready for work. I had been given more training for the volunteer work I did at a local food bank prior to prison. The first day, I half expected to meet at least one Danny DeVito or Jack Nicholson type from Cuckoo's Nest. I imagined there would be a nurse ratchet in the ward. In fact, there was no nurse at all. In this unit where every resident was deemed unfit for general population because their mental illness made them a risk, either to themselves or others, there was no medical or mental health staff in sight. For the most part, the unit setup was no different than for the general prison population. One wall lined with 38 6 by 8 feet cells, each with a single bed. A television encased in a metal box, I would find out why later, a toilet and a sink. The doors were barred, not solid. What was different was that right outside the cells were seven tables, hot water for coffee, and games. The guys had the luxury of being out of their cells twice a day for two hours of day room. After the officer let me in, he went back to watching whatever it was on YouTube that was engrossing him and the other officers. He nodded to the cells like I knew what to do next. I didn't, but I had to do something. So I went cell to cell introducing myself to each of the 38 residents. I made a point that first day to speak to everyone who was awake. That was a promise I made to myself that day and I've carried it through for the past two years. I don't remember the day I met Roger. He was transferred into the unit from mental health infirmary months after I started working. A thin man in his 50s with glasses so thick that his eyes looked the size of quarters. Roger could be the nicest guy in the world, or the worst. His mood revolved around a cup of tea. If he had one, all things were good. If not, watch out. I've seen him attack the first person he sees. I've seen him break a television into countless pieces. He's the reason the televisions are housed in steel boxes with protective glass covers. He was one of the few people in the unit with the courts had originally assigned to the state mental hospital. He did spend six years there before the state in a cost-cutting measure. 150,000 per year versus 40,000, decided that he was okay for prison. He fought the move and actually won a court case, but he remained in prison. 
His original 70-month robbery sentence has turned into a 16-year stretch because of minor and some not-so-minor infractions, almost all connected to his mental instability. Now he spent so much time in solitary that the openness of the ICH unit scares him. He's afraid to be around people. When it becomes too much, he goes to extremes to return to the mental health infirmary. He has assaulted fellow inmates, swallowed six radio batteries, and even ate a radio, which resulted in a hospital run and surgery. Even though it's not part of my job, I have his tea ready for when he returns. One thing I learned quickly was that everyone on the unit is not seeing things, hearing things, or sitting on their beds rocking back and forth. Some act as normal as anyone, usually thanks to massive doses of antipsychotics. These are usually the saddest stories and often the most dangerous guys. Miguel is one of those people. He was about to finish his undergraduate degree in Japanese studies, had a job, his own house, and a family who loved him. That all changed on a September morning 10 years ago when he was 22. While working the graveyard shift at a local market, the shirt of a customer became a hologram. From there, things progressed to his believing that he was a god who had special powers to make his college team win or lose games. I asked him if he thought all this odd. One second, you're selling a guy a pack of cigarettes, and the next, you're a god. He told me that in his mind, all this was normal. And to him, it was just the way things were. For two years, the disease progressed to the point where he saw conspiracy and insults in everything said to him. Eight days before Christmas, he knew someone had to die. The next day, he murdered his roommate as she was sitting at her laptop writing an email to her daughter. Schizophrenia doesn't discriminate. Some are born with it. Many others, like Miguel, experienced symptoms in their early adulthood. I worried about him the first day we met. I still do. His medication has stopped the symptoms, but it's allowed him to look at and relive every action he's taken. One night, months after we first met, he looked at me and asked, am I going to hell? How do I answer that? One thing I knew for sure, theological questions were not part of that week-long training. I don't lie to these guys, so I answered as honestly as I knew how. I, I don't know, but I hope not. I wish that I could say I told him that God forgives everything and all you have to do is ask. I didn't. If God made these guys' minds, he has to take some responsibility for them. Miguel has the possibility of leaving here after serving a 25-year sentence. He will be 49, but he's a dreamer, not a citizen. And immigration has put a deportation hold on him. He came to America at age five. His three sisters are United States citizens. If he is deported, he will be alone in a country with a mental disease, and it's a country he doesn't know. It's been more than two years since I walked onto the ICH unit. 
Half the guys who were there still are. A few others have done well enough to go to general population. Some of the others have been lucky enough to go home. More than I'd like to think about have gotten worse. I've stopped asking questions of the staff. They ignored them, told me to mind my own business, or sometimes gave me truthful answers that I wish I hadn't heard. Why did Barry spend three years of his life in prison only to have all his charges dropped three weeks after his release? Why is Gene spending five years in prison for a crime he has no recollection of? Now that his sentence is coming to an end, the state has decided to commit him involuntarily to the state mental hospital. Why does the system work this way? A few decades ago, there were 325,000 people in mental hospitals in the United States. Today, that number is less than 50,000. Have 275,000 been cured? Or are tens of thousands of them in prison? Those with mental illnesses who might come to prison for a short sentence sometimes end up staying for decades. They don't get consistent counseling. They don't get consistent medication. They act out in the depths of schizophrenia, seeing monsters cowering in the corner of his cell. A man spits on an officer. Punishment for an assault against staff is added to the end of his current sentence, each infraction adding more time. Why is it that officers can work in a mental health unit with no extra training? Why is it that if one of the guys has a mental breakdown after 8 o'clock p.m. or any time on Sunday, there is no mental health staff at the institution? Why was Michael allowed to die? I can't tell you the day that my work and ICH changed from being just a job. These men on the unit are friends, look forward to seeing them each day. Maybe in some small way I'm making a difference. But it may also be that I get more out of being with them than they do by having me there. This job is helping me survive prison. My Coworker by Edward G. My coworker makes parole. No goodbyes, just disappears. We wish him well in our hearts like among the dead with one resurrected. He'll forget about those still dead, shake off the gray dust, while here we still sleep an island away from the world. I file my departed friend into my memories of the gone and inherit his work boots as if I were the living and he the dead. Geode by David Pickett. Randy picked up a geode, a black gnarled rock, sliced open to reveal a crystalline pocket within, and turned it over in his hands. It was weird. Such an ugly exterior concealing a wonder within. He nearly dropped it when the woman spoke behind him. Couldn't get enough, huh? His mouth dry from nerves, Randy swallowed, set the rock back on the gift shop shelf, and turned around to face the tour guide. He was lanky, 
awkward in a body he'd seemingly never grow into. He looked like a 30-year-old teenager in his worn jeans and unzipped sweatshirt over a faded Metallica t-shirt from the days when he and Diane still went to concerts before marriage and the kids. He tightened his ponytail nervously, then shoved his hands in the pockets of his sweatshirt, one of which crackled from an empty shopping bag, and smiled briefly. Yeah, I wanted to take a few more pictures. I liked that room with all the... He couldn't remember the names. There had been so many names. He mined columns with his hands. Stalactites, stalagmites, those. They were cool. The guide smiled and looked around. Where are the kids? Are they coming too? My wife has a headache. So she's not going. And Coop and Tini wanted a picnic, so he trailed off. Mentally, Randy cursed at himself. He didn't want to share any identifying information like names. Even if they were nicknames, they were too close to the originals, Cooper and Tina. Their picnic consisted of bologna and Wonder Bread sandwiches washed down with warm Pepsi out in the parking lot. He hoped that Diane was coping with them okay. She had a tendency to get snappish, especially when she overheated, and their van had no air conditioning. Well, we're glad to have you back. We'll head down in just a couple minutes. The entrance to the caves was as the, at the back of the gift shop. Randy trailed the rest of the tour group, a dozen or so people, down the stone steps that led into the caverns below. He stepped gingerly back painful and threatening to spasm, despite the Oxycontin he had just taken a couple hours ago. A fall from a roof had left him unable to work, at least as a roofer, and he refused to apply down at the Walmart despite Diane's urging. They were making it, if just barely, on her home health aid pay and his disability, and if it hadn't been for her sister's wedding, the reason for their road trip, he wouldn't have been so desperate for money. Diane's family had always looked down on him. He had come from the poor side of town, and even when he'd been working, he hadn't been able to support the family to his in-law's standards. Randy couldn't face showing up to his sister-in-law's wedding without a gift. And even worse, maybe having to ask for help with gas money to get back home. He couldn't face the expression on his mother-in-law's face, the unsurprised disappointment of Diane's father. The guide's bright flashlight beam played over the walls as they descended, adding to the weak yellow light cast by battery-powered lamps mounted on metal boxes along the way. The tour group went down the steps and through the tunnels, while the guide pointed out features of the caves, reeling off her polished spiel about geologic time and the corrosive effects of water on limestone. Randy had heard it all already, of course. He hung back at the tail end of the group, hands in his pockets. He avoided making eye contact with any of the others. They went through the spillway, the map room, the cathedral, with its column of stone and colored mineral deposits mimicking stained glass where he took several pictures with his phone, not bothering to look at the results. After the dragon's lair, 
with its glittering throat leading to further inaccessible wonders, they reached the galaxy room. As they entered the cavern where their ceiling opened out and the walls pulled back to make a large open space, Randy moved past the rest of the group to stand near the guide who had her hand on the lamp box mounted on the wall. The rest of the tour group milled around and she raised her voice to be heard over the murmur. Echoes reflected her every word. This is the galaxy room. You may be wondering why we call it that when it's a cave deep on the ground while the galaxy, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is far above in the night sky and visible from here. I'm about to turn out the lights and show you. Now, be careful. Don't try and walk around when I turn the lights off. We don't want anyone to fall and get hurt. Also, your phones and cameras may not be able to capture what you're about to see. Please don't use flashes. They won't help and they'll ruin the experience for others. Randy was sweating heavily. He shifted a step closer to the guide who smiled at him. She flipped the switch to turn the lamp off, then clicked off the flashlight. The ceiling of the cavern sprang to phosphorescent life. What had been dull gray was now marked with sprays and swirls of glowing colors, pinks and greens and purples, as if the ceiling had been painted with light. It didn't much look like the Milky Way. It was more a fantastic collection, like glowing nebulas, clouds of stardust, and remnants of supernovas splashed across otherwise starless space. Randy pulled the pistol out of his sweatshirt pocket and pointed it at the tour guide. He spoke in a low voice. Give me the flashlight. At first she didn't seem to understand what was happening. She said, it'll just be a couple of minutes, then I'll turn the lights back on. Give me that flashlight, he said, voice slightly raised, and he waved the pistol in her direction. He realized she couldn't see it. I have a gun, he said, his voice cracking slightly on the last word. His stomach was churning and he felt like throwing up. He just wanted this whole thing to be over, to be back out on the road with the windows down and the wind blowing through with Randy Travis on the radio singing about a barbecue. What, the guide said, her voice rising. There was a click and the flashlight came on. The sudden light startled Randy and he nearly dropped the gun. He waved it at her again. Give me that light. Most of the group was oblivious to what was happening. They were still looking around the cavern, talking to one another about what they'd just seen. One woman, however, had noticed. She saw the pistol in Randy's hand and uttered a little scream. She clutched at the arm of the man she was with. Randy's gut spasmed. He raised his voice and spoke to the entire group. Hey, people, this is a robbery. <clears throat> he cleared his throat. I need your wallets and your money and give me that damn flashlight. He poked a pistol toward the guide who had gone very pale. She handed over the flashlight. Randy took the light and lodged it under his armpit, then reached into his pocket and pulled out a plastic grocery bag. He handed it to the guide and said, get everybody stuff in that. 
One old man had sat on the floor of the cave, massaging his chest. Others pulled out their wallets and handed them to the guide. A woman tried to give the guide a large purse, and Randy realized that there was no way it was going to fit in the bag. He called out, just wallets and cash, people. I don't need no damn purses. It seemed to take forever. Randy was wet with sweat by the time the guide brought the bag back to him. It was lumpy, and it jingled. People had put coins in it, too. And he almost dropped the flashlight when he grabbed the handles from the guide. All right, people, you just stay put. I'm going to go on up and get out of here. I want you to wait 15 minutes before you move from this room. Got that? He waved a pistol at the group. There was a general murmur of assent. He wasn't worried about them phoning for help. There was no signal down there in the depths. Can I turn the lamp back on? The guide asked. Once I leave, you can. Randy backed up toward the exit to the cavern. The old man had lain back on, on the rock, his blue-haired companion cradling his head in her lap. She was bent over and seemed to be talking to him in a low voice. Randy backed out of the room, turned, and fled toward the exit. Behind him, the lamp flickered on. Randy shoved the gun back into his pocket and moved rapidly through the last cave, stopping at each lamp box to turn it off. It wouldn't slow him down much, he figured, but it was something. It was in the next to last room when he switched off the lamp and turned to leave that he tripped over a stone ridge in the floor, sending the flashlight skittering across the floor and dropping the plastic bag. The flashlight went out. Coins rolled across the floor, and Randy's back erupted in pain, as if molten steel had been pouring down his spinal cord. He let out a small scream. He stayed down on his hands and knees in the dark for several minutes, hoping the, the pain would subside, would relent enough to allow him to get up. It did not. He lay down on the floor, on his side, knees drawn up toward his chest. Hot tears rolled across the bridge of his nose and dripped onto the rocky floor of the cave. He thought about Diane, sitting up in their minivan, sweating in the heat, about Teeny and Coop eating limp bologna sandwiches and waiting for their dad to show up about his mother and father-in-law when they heard the news. He reached into his sweatshirt pocket and pulled the pistol out. He waited for a light. Time Reversal Invariance by David Pickett. It used to be that physicists thought the world might run the same forward as in reverse. That is to say, we had no means to know which way time flowed. In such a world, a stream where we were carried against the current of our lives, cartwheeled up the slope of our personal avalanches, the walk, walk, walk of helicopter blades scooped the air between crash site and yellow cross on hospital roof led directly to the black stench of burning rubber and the glittering ice of glass pebbles 
cast among the highway shoulders, muted gray gravel, and the confusing geometry of the wreck. Limbs askew, bent at obtuse angles, isosceles triangles excised from fleshy parts, barred circle imprinted on the driver's chest, hyperbolic spray of blood on the grass, which upcoming or just passed convinced the driver to send one last text or the first in a series which ends as he pulls out of the driveway headed toward his final equations solution or his morning cup of coffee, dark, brewed and bitter, thick, foamy liquid straining itself back into ground beans. How are you feeling today? I miss you too. Yeah, I'm waiting for Cod now. As soon as he get off, you know I'm all yours. What movie you wanna to watch tonight? I'm thinking The Notebook. That movie always gets to me, so you know it's only right if you shed a tear too. <clears throat> uh, Which I don't want you to do tonight, so we're watching Jurassic World. <laughs> All right, see you when I get home. Man, why are you always sneaking up on somebody? <laughs> you whip, you know that? Nah, nah. I just like to spend time with my lady. My lady? What is this, medieval times? See, that's what's wrong with you now, Kai. You need to learn how to talk and treat a female. Don't try to justify being whipped. Listen, a brother that looks as good as me, there's no reason to be. Looks as good as you, my man. You so ugly, when you look in the mirror, your reflection ducks. How are you gonna talk about me? When you were a baby, your mother only got morning sickness till after you was born. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got me, you got me. Yo, what happened with the roommate situation? Oh man, Kai, first of all, it was a female renting the two rooms out. Don't tell me you said something crazy to mess it up. Nah, nah, listen. I told her about us and how we both have jobs. You have a car, how we just be good roommates. No loud music, we're clean, you know, things of that nature. So what happened? She said she only want one of us to move in, a male and a female. So, did you take it? Yeah, you gonna ask me that. If we don't find nothing together, then we'll wait till we do. So, if you can get a place right now without me, dirt cheap, you're not gonna get it. Nah. Yo, we're a team. You know that. We've been inseparable since we were five. If I get it, we got it. And ain't nothing coming between that. Can't do nothing but respect that. Besides, in a crib with two women? Now you know I'm not gonna have no type of win in that environment. <laughs> True, that's exactly why God created men before women. He didn't <laughs> want, want no type of advice. Yo, I'ma steal that one. Don't you boys, don't you boys start that hooting and hollering? You both see my window open, and this is about my time to take a nap. Now let me get a cigarette. 
Come on, old man Joe. How you gonna come out here and try to regulate? Regulate? What you, what you want me to take action? Mess around and make a movie out of you two? Now where's old man Joe's cigarette? <laughs> you lucky you've known us since we've been kids. Here, we make an example out of you. Don't threaten me with a good time. And why you boys ain't at work? Don't tell me you out in these streets being dumb trying to make a quick buck. Now you know we don't dabble in that type of activity, old man Joe. We're just chilling before we go to work. You better not. Even though you two had your parents upbringing, you both got some of old man Joe's teachings in you. I thought you was about to take a nap. Where you going? Obviously, old man Joe needs some cigarettes. So by the time I get back, hopefully you two be at work so old man Joe can take his nap. Shoot. Ooh, my back. You know you're old when your back goes out more than you. Oh, we get all the jokes today, huh? With your belly button looking head. Barefoot Moscato. You don't drink wine, old man Joe. Only when old man Joe got a date. Oh, yeah? I hope it ain't with Miss Gladys. I'll see you boys later. And stay out of trouble. It is Miss Gladys. Oh, man. Old man Joe, you're not that old. Her, on the other hand, she's so old, she probably DJ for the Paulston Tea Party. Yo, 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 she probably was a waitress in the Last Supper. Love is love. Love is love. Love is love. Yeah, yeah. Who you two ranking on now? Old man Joe Crazy Ass. Hey, yo, Mel, did you know Miss Gladys and him had a date tonight? Miss Gladys? Man, she's so old, she was in school when history class was called Current Events. <laughs> she, she's so old, she knew Burger King when he was still a prince. <laughs> in fact, she's so old, she might pass away before the date tonight. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, my, my whoa. Fault. God forbid. That's too far, Mel. My fault, my fault. Hello? What you want? because we don't have anything to talk about. Diapers? Look, I'm on my way to work. I don't got the time. Yo, who that? Vivian. Oh, that's homegirl. Hey, Viv. Hey, if I knew better, I'd do better. What's that mean? I think that's quite self-explanatory. Come on, bro. All right, all right. Listen, how many times I got to tell you you're on your own? I've been told you what to do. You're going to take my money now. I'm going to see you in court then. Yeah, yeah, whatever. What's happening right now? That chick be pissing me off, bro. Better to be pissed off than pissed on. All jokes aside, though, yo, you had a rider, a smart wifey. What happened between you two? And as you can see, all we do is argue. I see that, but that don't tell me nothing. Now let me in, Kyle. What's going on with you two? I mean, it's just with her, I see how women see men like bank accounts. Without a lot of money, they don't generate much interest. But she was with you when you was broke. Listen, you know I keep it with, um, 100 with you, right, Kai? Yo, I think you wildin'. You two used to be the hood Jay-Z and Beyonce. You was winning with her, not to mention, that's your baby's mother, man. And money hungry. 
As soon as I started getting my money up, she wanted to all of a sudden have a baby. Well, it's not like you two was practicing celibacy. No, nah, man, it's how it happened. As soon as I get this job, my car, and looking for a new apartment, she wanted to tell me she's pregnant. Yo, it got to be more than that. Oh, it is. Check it. So I sit her down and had her talk about having kids, and I told her I wasn't ready. That's understandable. But it's like that went in one ear right at the other. I mean, I feel like she just disregarded what I wanted and just went with her own plan. If she really cared about me, she wouldn't have had a baby. Are you serious, Kyle? How you think babies are born? What, you just slipped and fell? Listen, don't let your family be one of those broken family statistics. You know you love that girl. Plus, you and I both know she's not one of them type of girls to trap someone like that. I don't want to be one of them statistics. That's why I told her to get an abortion. Are you crazy? Man, I'm glad she didn't. Even though you ain't planning to have the kid, it's here. Man, I can't believe you ain't tell me this. It's a boy or girl? Boy, you think I'm in the wrong? Man, without a doubt. Do you think she'll take me back? Of course. Well, maybe. Probably not, but you have to work hard to earn something or someone and even harder to keep them. So just put in overtime. I ain't gonna stunt. My BM was official. Yeah, I do want, and I do want to see what a little man look like. Listen, Kai, a woman who loves comforts and serves, a man who loves protect and provide. Look, you like a brother to me, bro. Go get your lady back and take care of your son before it's too late, Kai. I got you. You know I need parts of that Godfather role. Yo, I know that's not a bag of money. Oh, they wowling. That means the police is not far behind. Stop right there. Drop the bag and put the hands on your head. Listen, officer, the two perks you're looking for on us, they just threw this at us. I don't know how you missed them. Yeah, wearing the exact same thing you two are wearing, cut the shit and put your hands on your head. Man, the only thing we really had in common was that there was black and so are we. Not gonna ask you two again. Put your hands on your damn head and turn around. Listen, we're trying to be respectful. Hey, yo, chill, we're gonna be straight. You know this is a blockwash neighborhood and somebody will vouch for us. We've been on this street for like 30 minutes. Yeah, I hope you're right. Come on, sir, that's unnecessary. Could have just told me to kneel down? Shut your mouth and put your hands on your head. Can you please get your gun out my face? Sir, we're both unarmed and we're not even a threat. Suspects being contained on uh, Wedge Winchester and Highland from the 1016 requesting backup. If you want me to stay like this to backup, come, I got you. Can you get the gun out my face, though? Yo, stay cool. How can I with this gun in my face? Shut up, boy. Kai, you hear this crap? Sir. We respecting you, respect us. Put your hands on your head and kneel down. Sir, I'ma comply, just, just do it. Stop the sudden movements. I mean, I'm tired of you, boy. Get on the ground now. I can hear you, just calm down. Stop moving your hands. Stop moving. Do what I say, boy. Just kneel and freeze. Gun! All right, all right, all right. Nah, nah, man. Nah, come on, bro, get up. Get up, bro. Come on, we're gonna be late for work, bro. Get up. Oh, man. Kai, what happened? Come on, bro, we gotta go to work. 
I'll call Viv, that's my word. You gotta get up, cause, cause you're the godfather. Please, bro, just get up. Come on, guy. Come on, we gotta go to work, so we, we gotta go. I know, son, I know. I'm gonna get that pig back, Joe. So you can end up in jail? And not go to Rell's funeral? Use your head, Kai. I know who he was to you and what he meant to you. Listen to me. Men control the action. The action should never control the man. You hear me? I know he was like a brother to you, but the only way out is through. And what we're gonna do is be strong and get through, right? Time heals all wounds, Kai. The thing with that is, they might not heal properly. What's the ultimate measure of a man? What? What's the ultimate measure of a man? It's not where it stands in the moments of comfort and convenience, but where it stands at times of challenge and controversy. That's right. And what we gonna do? Stand tall. Let's get out of here so they can clean this scene up. You still need them diapers? No, wait, don't hang up. I'm not trying to be funny. I know when, and I'm sorry, look, I know I ain't been there for you or our son since you told me you were pregnant, but I'm calling you for forgiveness and to ask you if I could come see you too. You're right, but Rail died today. And all he wanted to do was to go to work, go home, and spend time with his, with his lady. Believe it or not, I thought about you all day. And seeing Real laid out on the sidewalk like he was, just made me think how every day is not promised to us. If my heart could talk, it would be easier for me to express how I really feel about you. But I still have a lot of love for you. I can be there in 15 minutes? All right, I'll see you in a few. Hold up, hold up. What's my son's name? I like that. Khalif. Under the Bridge by Christiana Justice. Not too many things are difficult to deal with when you're high as a kite, soaring above the crowds of people in the streets of DC. It's no New York, but that suits me just fine. You can breathe a little better here in Chocolate City. I'm floating, wrapped in the warmest blanket you can only create with water and a needle. The only thread you need is your tie-off, and the contents of the blanket fit into a spoon, or a bottle cap, or even a tin can if you're in a tight spot. Any junkie will be very resourceful when it comes to the love of their life. But even this warm blanket can't keep the chill of a rainy night on the streets away forever. See, when it rains in the city, all the best stoops are snapped up by the seasoned people on the streets, those who've been homeless the longest. I wonder if it's because they feel the change in the air, so they know to find shelter, or if there's some kind of underground communication by the street veterans when one of, the, when one of them catches the weather on TV or radio. Either way, they've learned how to avoid what I'm going through now. The rest of us out here, fresh to the streets, new and uncertain, plus a scattering of hardcore alcoholics, we have to take the next best option. Looking around in the eerie light, I'm surprised half these people made it 
made it to cover. They might as well be sitting in the downpour for how inebriated they are. I'm not sure they would even notice the rain. I suppose since they've been doing this for so long that even in their incoherent state, they are creatures of habit. Though their minds may be gone, drowning in a bottle, their bodies know how to scurry to the nearest bridge to make it just marginally easier to get their necks fixed tomorrow. Begging for change is difficult if you're extra rank from not bathing because your clothes are damp. It becomes a losing battle, I should know. It's dark under here, our only light a flickering street lamp down the way, but my eyes have adjusted to it. I am eternally grateful that I have two blankets, one of itchy wool, the other of that crunchy dark brown heroin. The heroin makes me less afraid of the night creatures I am surrounded by and almost entirely accepting of the fact that I am sleeping under a bridge tonight. It used to smell bad under here, but I've gotten so accustomed to it, I don't notice the bodies and their smells or even my own. I'm far away from a quiet suburban home with a white picket fence. I threw it all out the window for just one more fix, the price I paid for my true love, heroin. I traded my life and my soul to the devil, injecting him straight into my now non-existent veins. Last night, I had to pay a fellow bum a 10-piece of crack to hit me in my jugular because I can't go into my hands anymore, and the pain of shooting up in my feet when I'm dope sick is simply too much to bear. One of my blankets is fading away, and the damp chill of reality is creeping up too fast for comfort, and I'm alone. This monologue was written by Sean Patrick Dunn in response to the question, Sean Thomas Dunn, we wrote Patrick. Sean Thomas Dunn, um, in response to the question, what, do, what does he want writers in the literary community to know and understand about him? I absolutely fucking hate being a prison writer. It makes my allergies flare up just thinking about it. My throat itches with anger. My eyes fill with disdain. My skin breaks out with resentment. It's like every editor's desk at every literary journal, publishing house, annual writing contest, and school newspaper is just inundated with submissions from prison writers or something. And these cheese dick motherfuckers are really driving down the value on my shit. I try to decorate my envelopes in a spunky way so as to distract my recipients from the bullshit parental advisory label that the cock knocker who reads the outgoing mail stamps on there. But nothing's doing. It's come to the point where I'm certain that state prison-generated mail is interpreted as third-rate tripe from a pile of human garbage. Oh man, you gotta know how much I hate it. Does it ever occur to me that the summary rejection with which my work is customarily received could be based upon its lack of merit rather than a discriminatory act of classist passive aggression? No, it doesn't. Now, as pertains to the second part of your question about being a writer outside of prison, I will admit to this much. I've spent a fourth of my life in prison, it's true. But what the fuck was I doing the rest of the time? If I was so worried about the hard connotation of being a prison writer, then I shouldn't have spent the other three quarters shooting up and masturbating in a bush. I hope my work will be received with the unyielding enthusiasm of a fucking Beatle maniac at Shea Stadium in 1965. I want so many people to be screaming in ecstasy that you can't even hear what the fuck I'm saying. 
I want to be invited to spend the night at your house, and I want to drink your beers and smoke your bud, and I want to be DJ and master of ceremonies all night long for the meaningful experience that we're going to have. I want to be written letters of love and hope, precipitated not by some bourgeois charity agenda, but predicated instead by the value of my personality and talent. I want to take LSD with you. I want to ride bikes with you. I want to FaceTime with you. I want to lend myself to care about your problems. And when shit goes sour between you and your old man, I want to be the alkaline base that uncurdles your funk. I want to talk to you about punk rock. Fuck, man, I, I should have put that first. Oh, Christ. I've been thinking about this one a long time. Great heavens to Murgatroyd. I want to listen to new bands with you and cut and paste collages and write zines with you on your bedroom floor. I want to hold your hair back when you puke, girly. I want to buy you a corn dog, girl. You got to check out my double kick flips and my pressure flips, fakey pressure flips, pressure flips for days, girl, and seahorses forever. We could totally watch all the horror movies I've missed these last five years. I've been upstate. Oh, man. You don't even know. This one time, I sat there and watched all the Halloweens with this beautiful gothic girl named Crystal. I sat through 10 hours of Michael Myers, and don't get me wrong, I was fully into it because I love horror movies, and plus, we had just narrowly escaped the iniquitous obsession of methamphetamine possession, and we ate and slept finally, and her dad came by and took us to rent movies, so we were just smoking long, bud, and feeling the serenity of 1980s horror creep into the synaptic knobs of our overused dopamine receptors, and just doing it grand. But inasmuch as I had a lifetime-lasting episode of joy to reflect upon and look back in the real-life horror movie that would ultimately envelop the rest of my life, I also had a monumentally miserable experience because I wanted her so bad. But Crystal just didn't feel that way about me. One by one, Halloween, one, two, three, four, five. The whole time flailing in the dichotomy of joy and abject torment as she sat there in her tiny boxer shorts on her futon beside me. It was awful but maybe it won't be like that with you. Maybe this time you'll just look at me the way I always wish she had, and we'll go and put bottles of dish soap in the fountain at City Hall, and we'll start an acoustic punk band, and we'll hang out at Tompkins Square and Battery Park, and when the cold weather comes, and when the rain comes, and when the dope runs out, and when the cops come and take us away, and we wake up on the holding cell floor, and we have to kick, at least we won't be alone. That is what I hope to accomplish when I put my motherfucking pen to page. I'm trying to make a friend, that's all. What do I want from your community? Maybe it's hard for you to imagine this, but I have tears in my eyes because no one has ever thought to ask me that question. So, I would like to yield the floor to the little blue-eyed boy inside me, staring out the window, waiting for mom to come home at 3 a.m. The answer to your question is, I just want to be your friend. <laughs>